Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Shadow Talk, Digital Shadows Cyber Threat Intelligence Podcast. With me, as always, I have Ivan. Hello. Charles. Hey. And uh, Rick Holland. Hello. All right. Let's go ahead and just get rolling right into it. I actually wanted to start with some research that we published this week on initial access brokers. I was actually able to contribute to this research. And so I just kind of wanted to briefly talk about it. I think it's uh, has some pretty interesting findings in our research. Um, so yeah, just to kind of give like a level set, initial access brokers, these are your kind of middlemen uh, that we've, we, we've assessed to be the kind of the middlemen for ransomware uh, affiliates. So they gain access to a network, to any organization, whether that be through RDP or through a, a Citrix access. And then they can go ahead and sell off that access to any uh, threat actor that wants to potentially launch a ransomware attack or just kind of use the access for any, any really anything that they see fit. Um, so yeah, I just kind of wanted to, to, to bring that up. Charles, I wanted to start with you. Uh, in our research, we found such a widespread prominence of RDP, so many listings. Um, and just to kind of give a little bit more background into the data behind the, the research, we uh, analyzed about 500 or so listings across 2020. Um, but really the prominence was around RDP. So, um, you know, the sell of access via RDP. And I kind of wanted to pick your brain, Charles. Um, I know there's a ton of research out there about the rise of the remote worker uh, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. But uh, I was just really interested in your thoughts on defending RDP access. Yeah, I mean, like you just pointed out, you know, especially with the rise of, of remote working, it's people need to be able to access infrastructure remotely. Uh, and a lot of places don't necessarily have the budgets to sit down and try and like think about purchasing, you know, like software that can monitor a lot of the stuff or implementing like, you know, the big buzzword of zero trust solutions for stuff. Like, so they're going to use what's available, which would be uh, like a lot of Microsoft places going to be RDP and it can get kind of confusing and especially in, in bigger areas to start trying to secure that kind of stuff. And I mean, you know, the, the general consensus is don't put RDP on the internet, just, just don't do it. But I get that some people have to do it. Uh, yeah. And if, if you are, I mean, you know, there's a whole host of articles, I mean, training courses on securing just, just RDP. Uh, but I mean, it's just, it's one of the most common methods of attack because it's so prevalently used by so many people and uh, just weak, weak passwords, you know, people reusing passwords across like the domain for stuff. So you, you send a phishing email and get domain credits and now you can RDP into stuff. And uh, so it's, it's a, it's just such a common attack technique because it's relatively easy to get those credentials or find them elsewhere, you know, like password spraying, things like that, just brute forcing passwords. Um, but if you have to put RDP on the internet, like the best thing you can do is just network level authentication, enable that. Use an RDP gateway server if you can. Two-factor authentication. Uh, I think things like that are going to be the best ways to mitigate a lot of the risk that you see with using RDP. So, Yeah, definitely. And I think with kind of the craziness of the pandemic uh, last year, um, just everybody kind of moving so quickly to facilitate the remote, the remote workforce, it was just kind of like, let's just get this done as fast as possible, the easiest way possible. And so I, it was pretty common for us to kind of uh, see the use of default cred credentials and that kind of being, I think that's probably like the initial, like the first step for 
an initial access broker to try and gain access via that way. They're just going to do some of the, the easy low hanging fruit type of stuff to gain access. Uh, and so that's kind of one of the mitigations that we propose in the report. But yeah, I, I just kind of moving on uh, from there and kind of thinking towards the future of initial access brokers there. I mean, this isn't a new trend or this isn't like a new thing that we're seeing. Like we've seen listings. I went back and looked at a listing um, that was posted in like 2010. Uh, and I imagine there's probably listings older than that, that we probably don't have access to, but um, initial access brokers have been around for quite a time. And I, I guess Ivan, you know, what we know about the ransomware landscape and where it's kind of headed, what do you think is like the future for initial access brokers? So uh, ransomware groups, they have a lot of interest in the access provided by the cyber criminals. So one of the toughest tasks for ransomware operators and their affiliates is gaining that initial access to the victims uh, so they can exploit it. And once they have access to a victim's network, uh, they can move laterally, they can elevate privileges, exfiltrate data, encrypt information, and all that type of stuff. Uh, but gaining that initial access, that's usually the hard part. And that's where the access brokers come in because they can provide that access for a price and then ransomware operators, they can use that access to launch their attacks. So we have already seen a lot of access brokers promoting their sales by saying that it could be used for activities such as ransomware. Uh, so in the future, we could likely see more of these access brokers forming partnerships with ransomware groups in a multi-beneficial partnership type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the big things that we touch on in the report is just how 2020 was so, was it was initial access brokers gained prominence throughout 2020. It was just because of the rise of ransomware and, and they kind of went hand in hand. And it seems like, you know, as ransomware grows, there's this new opportunity for affiliates to kind of grow in that, in that, in that need uh, because, your ransomware developers, they have a high demand on their affiliates right now. They want to be, you know, the top dog from the ransomware landscape. And so they're pushing their affiliates to get more victims. And it, it, the, these initial access brokers kind of give give way to that, kind of make that a possibility. Just kind of rounding out just the, the, the discussion on initial access brokers. Um, and I definitely recommend checking out the white paper because um, we recommend some, some ways to combat this threat. I think this is a really unique... It, presents like a unique opportunity and I don't think it's this is like a foolproof method but I think any single tool that you can use to thwart uh, cyber criminals or even nation state threat actors because we have seen reporting of nation state threat actors kind of leveraging initial access brokers as well and it I mean it would make sense because initial access but they don't really they don't care who they sell to they're customer agnostic they're going to sell to whoever's going to pay the amount but uh, just kind of I think this provides like an interesting point into the attack chain where you can maybe identify a listing that could be relevant to your organization. Uh, and so we kind of dive deeper into that in the mitigation sections of the white paper. So uh, again, definitely go ahead and, and give that a read and kind of look, look through some of our findings and recommendations when it comes to taking care of these, this initial access broker threat. But moving on from there, you're going to notice kind of the theme for the rest of the, the podcast around uh, third-party attacks. And I know we've kind of, I know we've kind of hit this nail on the head uh, quite a bit uh, with the SolarWinds incident, but there was some new activity that I think could have some interesting implications to the ransomware landscape. So let's talk about uh, Exilion. And uh, I'll start here with Charles. Um, what, what happened with that uh, Exilion incident? Can you give us some of the technical details of that zero day that was used? 
Yeah, so there's actually uh, four new CVEs that were registered as a result of this, but uh, basically uh, the TLDR version is that uh, the threat actors were able to use SQL injection uh, and dump some tokens that were used to be able to turn around and write a web shell uh, via a post, like a specifically crafted post request. Uh, once they had that shell, you know, they were able to start maintaining persistence and start pulling out data and doing stuff like, like that, like Ivan mentioned earlier uh, with some of the other stuff that you do after you get access. Um, but uh, that was kind of the main thing is this, this company was a, a file transfer software. Uh, so that kind of made it a little easier for them to just kind of move things out unnoticed because that's something as a, as a defender, it's kind of sometimes you look at stuff and don't if software is doing what it's expected to do, file right. transfer software is transferring files. You know, it doesn't really, <laughs> it doesn't really ring a lot of like alarms in people's heads sometimes. Uh, so um, that was kind of a, a clever way to kind of move around and start exfiltrating data by targeting that. Um, but that, that was kind of how they got that initial web shell on there and then maintain that persistence to start moving around. Yeah. One thing I would say, one thing I would say to tie it back to what we just talked about, if you've got RDP running uh, publicly across the internet, you've got bigger problems than zero days in your supply chain from your tech stack. So one thing I will talk about on third-party risk side is like, you know, don't fight yesterday's wars. Like don't swing to third-party risk management at the expense of like fundamentals that you need to have. The things that Charles said earlier, like multi-factor authentication, that sort of thing. So, you know, try to have a balanced approach to your threat model. And when we have the latest, oh my God, supply chain breach, consider it, but consider how it impacts the other components of your security program as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think there's there's some interesting findings coming out that kind of uh, overlap FIN11, the threat, the threat group FIN11, and then the CLOP ransomware team. Um, so Ivan, I, I guess I just kind of wanted to ask you, what do you think is the significance of FIN11 being tied to the initial Excelion uh, incident? And then now we're seeing some um, activity on the, clamp, the CLOP data leak site for that, that ransomware variant. Yeah, so essentially what happened is that in late January, a lot of the victims from these attacks, they began receiving emails that were threatening them that... Uh, their data would be exposed on the CLOP leaks website, which is the data leakage website for the CLOP ransomware. Uh, so that suggests that FIN11, uh, who deploys the CLOP ransomware, was uh, responsible for this attack, possibly. Sorry. So that suggests that the attack was likely conducted by FIN11, who deploys the CLOP ransomware, and they might have, they might have been responsible for this attack. Uh, so this is an interesting incident because we haven't seen many supply chain attacks being conducted by ransomware groups on this scale. And what made it fairly unique is that no data was encrypted during the attack, but instead they simply used the web shell to exfiltrate data from victims and they never left a ransom note on the victim's devices. So uh, they just sent emails instead. And this is something that's fairly unusual for ransomware. Uh, and I'm sure that a lot of companies, maybe they got it confused for phishing emails when they first got it. Uh, but yeah, it's a very interesting incident and it's interesting to see if any other ransomware groups are going to be taking notes from this because FIN11 has shown that there's a lot of, of value in targeting third-party providers or supply chains. Yeah, so I mean, just to clarify that, so like just as an example, one of the victims of this um, was a law firm named Allen's out of Australia. And so 
again, in your typical ransomware incident, they might have used the the access that they had to pivot uh, and then encrypt the systems of Allens. But in this case, they didn't do that. They just sent a you know an email and said, "Hey, we have access to your data as part of." an incident that occurred at a third party that you use, we're going to post your data on our data leak site if you don't pay us. And I, I don't know. I just think that's really interesting and to see if maybe this is going to be adopted by the broader ransomware team or the broader ransomware uh, threat uh, of this kind of like, it's not necessarily like, it's not ransomware because you're not, you know, their, their systems aren't necessarily encrypted in any way, but they're still threatened by the loss of data uh, as a result of a third party being involved in, in a breach. So yeah, and I, I guess kind of similar to that vein and kind of keeping with this uh, third party uh, attacks and how it could be leveraged to uh, infect multiple or impact multiple victims, we saw some activity from the Cuban ransomware team uh, who was able to successfully encrypt the system. So there's a ransomware incident on the systems for the automatic funds transfer services. Uh, and as a result, eight United States cities and agencies have disclosed data breaches as a result of that. And the, just to kind of run through a few of those, this included like the the, Cal- the California Department of Motor Vehicles and then like three or four other cities in California and Washington um, saw significant loss in PII, consumer PII. So, I mean, like just the, the implications of this single access point resulting in multiple victims. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's just interesting. Uh, Ivan, you know, what are the significant implications that come as a result of like so much PII being potentially exposed? Yeah, so PII is very valuable to threat actors. Uh, That can include stuff like names, email addresses, dates of birth, socials, passwords, and other type of information, anything that can be used to identify an individual. And threat actors, they can use that information for everything from social engineering attacks, fraud, impersonation, uh, and credential stuffing, uh, you name it. And they're, they're going to take that information, they can use it maliciously, or maybe they can sell that information to other cyber criminals to make a profit on it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we see that quite often from our access into the, the cyber criminal space. We, we know how valuable PII is and how that could potentially be used in follow-on attacks uh, or you know, easily, pretty easily monetized uh, in the threat landscape. So again, I... I I think, you know, it just could this be the new trend, Ivan? Do you think this could be the new trend from ransomware teams where they're, they're going to start? I mean, we've seen it in the past where they've kind of hit like MSPs or, uh, you know, that single access point. But I think this, you know, maybe this is going to be something where it's not about, you know, you don't necessarily have to put a ransomware attack on every single victim. But if you have data that's relevant to that organization, you could then just try and extort a payment, um, you know, just kind of, get the most out of the data that you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it's an interesting viewpoint. Uh, there's a lot of information that is very sensitive and exposure of that information could really put, uh, cause a lot of damages to a company and cause a lot of legal fines. So there's definitely the extortion aspect. Public exposure aspect is very dangerous for a lot of companies. However, I don't think that's gonna, they're going to go away with the encryption because that's also something that's relevant. If a company gets all their data encrypted, including their backups, uh, that's also going to be enticing for, for them to pay the ransom. That's why we call it double extortion because we don't only have ex- we don't only have public disclosure or encryption. We have both of them. Having both uh, encryption of data and the threat of public disclosure 
that can make the threat a lot higher for, for companies and that can make uh, the paying the ransom a lot more likely for cyber criminals so they can they can make a lot more money by using both of them so that's why I don't think they're gonna do away with the encryption and they're likely still gonna be using both of them in the future yeah but I think this situation is kind of unique definitely and that's kind of like pivots into another talk point that I wanted to, to speak on like I would imagine that there's probably some pressure from some of these organizations that were like, oh, I got this message that they're going to leak the data that they took from your system. Like, are, can you pay the ransom, please, so that this doesn't happen? Or like, you know, where does that fall now that, that there's like this kind of like aspect of like, you know, additional pressure from like customers of a, a third party. Are like, hey, can you pay that ransom yeah. so that way my data doesn't get exposed? I just think that's kind of like a fascinating uh, addition to kind of the, the ransomware landscape, what we're seeing. And then like, you know, like who's to blame when you, we kind of think about um, data loss reporting and, uh, you know, data breaches, like does that fall back on the third party or does that fall on the organization that, you know, <laughs> that owned the data initially? Like, I don't know. That's, that's like something that I think policymakers are going to have to think through. Um, I, and I don't know, Rick, I, Charles, any thoughts on, on kind of like that aspect? I feel like the insurance companies in general and policymakers for certain are so far behind on technology um, and how to approach things. Um, you could look at, at as one thing like ransomware payouts and some of the policy conversations around them. So my best advice is I wouldn't look for my insurers or my policymakers to bail me out. And I would just try to protect the data as best I can. Um, kind of not like, unlike the storm that we had here in Texas last week, don't rely on the government to keep the lights on and try to uh, protect yourself as best you can. I don't know, Charles, if you have anything you want to add on to that. Yeah. I mean, so like I, I wrote that blog, I guess close to a year ago about third party, you know, risk assessments, kind of some stuff you could think about incorporating into your third party risk assessment program. Uh, and I, I don't think a lot of that has changed even with this kind of recent trend, but I mean, I mean, basically you have to, you have to do your due diligence, I think uh, as, as the, the biggest thing uh, and, and look at stuff that is hard to, I would say it's hard to quantify sometimes when you're checking boxes about like, Oh, does, does this company have these certifications? Do they do X, Y, and Z, you know, uh, because you have to look at things like, how did they handle the media response, like fallout of a previous breach? Have they been previously breached? How did they handle it? You know, like if, if they're very, you know, opaque and don't like to answer questions about stuff and then just basically said like this happened and here's what we did uh, and then don't really provide any transparency or like, you know, meaningful methods of disclosure and what they're going to do to fix it. Is that, is that somebody that you can like feel like you can trust to, to continue to do business with? Or, or, you know, I, I think there's, there's a lot of stuff there that's, doesn't always fit into uh, a neat box about, you know, evaluating what you're going to be doing with data and stuff. So um, it's, it's just one of those weird ones, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. Uh, Rick, what are your thoughts on cyber insurance regarding this and how companies use it and how maybe if we use a cyber insurance and we pay the ransom, are we, you know, helping the attackers and funding them? Well, that's a, I mean, that's a, there's a lot to unpack in that one, Ivan. Um, a couple of thoughts on cyber insurance. Um, practically speaking, for most policies, I think your insurance is never going to cover loss of intellectual property. You know, you're more likely to use your cyber insurance policy to cover your, your PR response 
you're in, you know, to bring CrowdStrike in, uh, Mandiant, whoever the case, uh, the case may be there on the extortion stuff. You know, that one, I think it's, you got to talk to, you got to talk to your privacy, uh, you know, data privacy officer. You got to talk to your inside counsel, very likely getting guidance from outside counsel. You want to talk to your, to your regulators as well. Um, so I think it's like a very great thing. I've talked to both in my time at Forrester and even here, I've talked to people that have not coordinated with their, um, uh, their regulator um, or their insurance company when making a, an extortion payment. And then they were thinking that their insurance policy would cover it and then have it not. So, you know, I think that's one where you're going to be doing lots of legal review and inside and outside consultation on. Um, but what you don't want to do is have an extortion event and be having this conversation for the very first time, right? This is a whole planning for failure and tabletop exercises that bring in a very diverse uh, group of people there. So it's a great question, Ivan. Very, very complicated uh, answer to it, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes yeah, sense. Yeah, definitely. That's, I would, I would piggyback on, on that and just add, in my opinion, uh, people should not be looking at cyber insurance as something that you buy in lieu of developing a security program. Uh, that's, I, f- I feel like that is, that's one of my biggest worries and concerns with, with that kind of insurance in general, is that people, people look at those premiums as something they could pay instead of hiring people to secure things. So, yeah. or or that you, um, so again, I think it's where you have to have a lot of communication and it's very, you have to have a risk-based conversation with, with your, your, with your leadership um, on it because there will be some risks that it costs too much money and the business will be willing to accept the loss. You just need to have had that conversation so they understand what they're accepting. Because I think a lot of times people don't, oh, we're going to accept the risk. They don't know what that actually means. And when it comes to transferring risk via a policy, you're not transferring the image of your brand to a third party. You know, you may have a cyber insurance policy that pays out and helps minimize uh, the cost of, uh, of an intrusion and loss of data, but that's not going to help your brand. Um, and your brand, your, if you're a public company, your stock price, uh, your valuation could take a hit. Debatable how big the hit is in the long term if you look at some of these organizations that have been breached over the years. But yeah, you can't transfer your way out of this. You can do things to minimize risk, communicate risk well. Ultimately, you still have your brand that you need to 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 prepare for. So that's why I think like the risk based approach and and having conversations with senior leadership and not using FUD to communicate um, is is really important. That's why you need very strong security leaders that can speak in terms that business cares about versus oh we have five hundred and twenty two IOCs and we had this many CVEs right yeah um, th- those aren't the conversations uh, to have at that level yeah. yeah yeah definitely no really good conversation really good uh, just thinking about the you know in these these third party attacks and kind of going back to the solar winds incident like does are we going to really remember that like solar winds was the 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 third party, or are we going to really remember like the ultimate victims that were the result of that? So like, where do you know, where does the egg on the face fall? Is it going to be on the third party or, or is it going to be on the, the, the ultimate victims of the, of the attack? So 
It's kind of interesting to think, think about. I think there's egg to go all around. <laughs> Plenty of there eggs. Because, because even the companies that have gone public, you know, and admitted that they had solar winds in their environment, you know, there's been, there's been, so I guess the question on that is though, is like, how long does it, to use the analogy still, how long does the egg stay on your face? Yeah. If you have a well thought out response plan, you communicate what you know, you don't use the word sophisticated, you know, like solar winds is actually an example when Mandiant says it's a sophisticated actor, you can believe that versus other groups that just throw sophisticated out. Meanwhile, it was open um, RDP, right, that, that came in. Um, it wasn't a sophisticated attack. Could have still been a sophisticated actor. So, yeah, that's a – I mean, yeah, it's crazy times that we uh, – like, what's the next event that's going to happen in the next couple of weeks that we're going to talk about? I'm sure there's going to be more of this third-party risk conversation. Cyber Pearl Harbor. <laughs> Leon Panetta in the house. <laughs> Oh, goodness. All right. Yeah, no, really good conversation. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of, of things and to keep keep us busy over the coming months. Just you know, nothing, nothing, uh, no rest for the wicked, it seems. But uh, just to kind of round us off with some plugs of research. Again, uh, we spoke to it briefly at the beginning of the podcast. The initial access brokers, white paper, can't say enough. Please go take a read. Uh, additionally, out of that, we've made some recommendations on uh, five ways to actually take action on threat intelligence and then how to monitor initial access listings uh, through Searchlight. So just some interesting uh, blogs that we have on our website we recommend to go and have a look. All right, and as always, if you want to reach out, feel free to, to reach me on Twitter. Twitter handle is AlecA6. Uh, happy to, to speak to cyber threat intelligence uh, and uh, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, another another good week, another good podcast. Uh, thanks, Charles, Rick, and Ivan. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you all. Stay safe. Yeah, stay safe. 